Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Hello, permissionaries. Kristen Tideman here. Some of you may have met me back in March at the live event we had in Seattle, and I'm back today with some exciting news. Theology Beer Camp is returning this October 19th to 21st in Springfield, Missouri. The theme? The God Pods Strike Back. And of course, You Have Permission is one of those God Pods. So what can you expect at Theology Beer Camp? Well, besides three days of craft beer and other beverages with your favorite God Pod hosts and theologians, they've got scholars, live podcasts, tailgate parties, 90s karaoke, an epic bottle share, and even this year, a fall festival. Plus, you'll get to hang out with Dan, the entire Big Five, Josh, Tony, me, and a bunch more new friends and other incredible podcasters. Plus, I hear that this year, Dan might be planning a special hang time exclusively for permissionaries, so you don't want to miss out. When registering for Theology Beer Camp, use the special You Have Permission promo code and you'll get $25 off your ticket. The promo code is YHPGODPOD, all caps, no spaces. While this code is good until ticket sales end, don't wait too long because prices go up July 15th. Simply go to theologybeer.camp to register. Of course, don't forget to follow Theology Nerd and GodPods2023 on Instagram for all the latest updates and behind-the-scenes goodness. Hope to see you in October! My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Natalie Wig Stevenson, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book called Transgressive Devotion, Theology as Performance Art in 2021 that came out. It did. Yes, that is. And then you took sort of that more academic study and you did something that is almost a unicorn <laughs> in my <laughs> circles, which is you made something practical out of it. And you built the Transgressive Devotional, which is a web-based six units or whatever, kind of walking people through this beautiful sort of multifaceted, poetic, 
healing, but also open. What, what would you even call it? I mean, it's a devotional, but is there another word for it? Like, I landed on transgressive devotional, but I was also thinking of it as sort of a spiritual journey, facilitated engagement of creativity to help people piece back together or reassemble or reimagine what it would be to live faith in light of crisis. Exactly. And that sort of constructive aspect of it, I think, is what drew me to the project. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, for myself, for almost every listener of this podcast, and for almost every friend I have in real life, there has been, you know, deconstruction for whatever you think about that term. It's fairly apt in the sense that there has been stuff that had to get sort of broken down to its bare parts, re-examined, and, you know, looking for basically mold, mold on the fruit, looking for mm -hmm. the, the stuff that's really toxic. And depending on people's story, that is either more or less personal, more or less abstract. But then we find ourselves sort of going, okay, after we've done that or spent some time doing that, that's very cathartic. It's, it's very necessary. But a lot of us find ourselves going, all right, so then now I've got another 60 years to live on this earth or however many we have, <laughs> 20, 40. And what am I going to do now? You know, mm -hmm. like what, how am I going to move forward? What am I going to construct or what will a community help me construct? And so I'm just kind of always on the lookout for nuanced and healthy looking projects or anything that sort of moves us in that direction. Before I say what I specifically like about it, can you just respond to that sort of that constructive sort of second move? I'm mm -hmm. curious if you have any thoughts about that. At least when I went through my own process with faith of trying to pull it apart and figure out how to flourish a little more from the places I'd come from, I was reading a lot of postmodern philosophy already. And so this idea of deconstruction is something that's purely destructive. I'd kind of never went that route. It was always for me the idea of finding what's hidden inside um, something, its traces, uh, as Tarot would say, and releasing those, um, releasing the shadow sides or the of what's hit what's hidden inside the things we do on a day-to-day -day basis or the ways we think about reality. And so yeah, we, I think we can feel them as really distinct moves, but all the while, I think of it just we're opening up and, and releasing the fissures that are already there. And so this project was about that sort of creative eruption. I had done the more traditional, you know, don't call God he, don't do like all those things that I had to do for a good 10, 15 years. But then a lot of babies got thrown out with a lot of bathwater. Right. And I realized how many things I still missed from the old days. And so wanted to think about how to bring some of those back in a new form. And that's where the, this, this project came from. I'd spent enough time feeling uninspired in my faith, I guess, never connecting with the alternative options that I wanted to bring back some of the, the power, I guess. I found myself back at our old church, which used to be a Presbyterian Church of America church, which is a, I don't know, pretty conservative sort of mm -hmm. Southern-based denomination. And our church was always sort of pushing the envelope, especially on racial and justice issues within that denomination, sort of unsuccessfully, and even to some degree pushing on men and women sort of gender issues in terms of having women deacons and stuff like that, which was very rare. And then they left, they left the PCA since my wife and I left like four plus years ago. And I started taking my son back because he's getting old enough and we're moving in about a year. And I was like, well, it's fine. You know, like I'll be okay. And my son will certainly get something that I'm glad he's getting. And then we will start fresh when we move mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll, cause we didn't really find anything that we liked better. But what surprised me is my experience sitting in the church that I was planning to be quite underwhelmed by. Mm -hmm. And I've not been underwhelmed. I've actually been sort of overwhelmed and surprised by how much I've enjoyed it and how little anxiety I've had about some of the changes. So the, the church is now Anglican and some of those changes I, I prefer just because it's gotten close to an, closer to an Episcopal type liturgy, shorter sermons, which I just always prefer. 
I, I for, for personal uh, attention and also sort of psychological reasons, I don't think people can really absorb all that much. But also things that used to bring me anxiety, either anxiety as a Christian trying to make sense of the data of scripture or whatever, or as a liberal Christian sitting in a more conservative church mm-hmm. and feeling the tension there. It was Palm Sunday and we read this Isaiah passage about, you know, he'll be wounded for our transgressions. And at the mm-hmm. beginning of that passage, if you've read it or if your church read it recently, it's this passage where the the wounded servant or whatever is described as like disfigured, mm-hmm. like very ugly. Like the, the thing I think of is Quasimodo from mm-hmm. the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so I thought, interesting, that isn't, that part doesn't really sound like Jesus. And then like, I noticed where the anxiety would have gone either in the direction of, wait, but then if it's not Jesus, then is this really prophecy? And is my faith a lie? Or is this church going to kind of lean too heavily into something, you know, sort of reductive and I'm going to have all these questions. And I didn't feel either of those. Like Mm -hmm. I noticed where I would have gone. And instead I found myself thinking, huh, aren't religions interesting? (laughs) (laughs) And it was a really healing sort of moment for me. The kind of thing that I I sort of read and see throughout your devotional of this sort of like, there is a place you can kind of get to. And I don't know if everybody gets there or why and when they get there, but I'm, I'm kind of glimpsing that fresh Mm -hmm. Uh, and it shocked me sort of in some ways, how long it's taking me to get there. Okay, I've been talking too long, but I just wanted to throw that story out there because I think it's kind of lining up with what you're saying. Totally. I think that we just go through these phases in our own spiritual journeys where things might crystallize or integrate for a moment. And the critical work we've done and the presence of and power of the Spirit in our lives and the call we might be experiencing to new forms of faith, they just all they have these moments of clicking. I feel it too. Like for me, they've happened... Back when I was a charismatic evangelical, I, mean, I would just sing for hours. I think I said, I talked about this somewhere in the devotional. I would just sing and lost. And it was so transcendent. It was full of life and overflowing. There was an eroticism to it, all of those parts. And I felt like I had to give all that up because now the word problematic and something is problematic and then something else is problematic. And I needed to step away from that for a while. And I tell the story of how, but my body can't let go of that. And so I'd hear a praise and worship song and I'd be resisting it. The listeners can't see, but you can imagine like my hand kind of coming up at the side and I'm smacking it back down because God forbid I lift my hand in praise. Yeah. And then I just started worshiping in a church that had praise and worship music and slowly gave myself back to it because I had been on this journey of feeling like that couldn't hurt me anymore. In fact, I wanted to reclaim some of the healing and the love and the joy and the excitement and the self-transcendence, the deep visceral nature of transcendence. I could experience all of that again without those words being harmful. And I think the challenge of talking about things like this is that, so now what a listener could be thinking, well, what a jerk. She thinks she's made it to there. She thinks she's better, right? <laughs> Who knows where I'm going next? I could once again say, okay, I need to spend five years not using masculine language for God or need to spend a good decade again not singing praise and worship music. I don't know. This is just one stop on the journey right now. And when we think in terms of progress and we just end up thinking this, is, everything's getting better, but... I think we're sort of circling and swirling, trying to find our way back into God all the time. You know, for listeners who are kind of wondering where they're at, if they're at this elbow, if they've kind of gone around it and they're just looking for something now to give language, or if they're not there yet, and maybe they still have some processing to do, like, were there clues? Like, how did you know that you wanted to you know, I don't know if reclaim is the right word, but Mm. sort of, you know, take a constructive, a a sort of a building approach or, you know, resume. Was it mainly your, literally your body (laughs) starting to move again against your sort of cognitive will or what else was going on that told you, oh, this might be a new season here? Oh yeah. That's a lovely question. I mean, definitely always body starting to move again, listening to our bodies is so difficult. And if my body starts wiggling, then I know it's got something to tell me. I guess I'm not sure there was a big shift 
towards the constructive moment. I think more, I, I tend to think of it them as, as critical years, years that were a bit more adrift than deconstructive years. But even during that time, I still felt God's God was being active somehow. I mean, there was a period where I actually just didn't feel the presence or the voice or awareness of God at all. But even that felt like a place where I was supposed to be and just kept sitting with that while it lasted. But I think the glimmers, I think of them as glimmers. They come in just little moments of recognition. Like you say, the surprise, the realization that there's a dissonance or some a misfit here. And rather than fearing or jumping away from that dissonance, trying to lean into it and think, what the heck just happened? And I know there were moments in churches where I would feel so blessed by something that I would have rejected, or at least said I would have rejected five minutes ago. And I could feel that moment in my body of, no, I need to reject that. Or what happened if I embrace this for a moment? What if I just leaned into it a little bit? I can always lean back out. That's okay. And that split second of decision to lean further in or to protect myself a little longer, I think they were both formative moments. I would say, well, like it's super annoying or super lovely for people to hear someone else talk about the Camino de Santiago. But that when I walked the Camino, that was like, I learned a lot doing that. Many friends have said something similar. This is a, a, a very uh, common pilgrimage that Christians, but other people will take in Spain. Mm-hmm. You can, you can sort of do the whole thing or part of it. And it's, it's a pilgrimage. It's a Tell us a little bit about it. It's it's a, it's a bucket list item for me that I haven't gotten around to yet. So um, my spouse and I were going through a significant period of infertility as we were trying to have our first child and we were waiting to see if a treatment had worked and kind of lying there in bed. And I said something like, you know, if this one takes, my one regret is that we never walk the Camino. And my spouse said, all right, if this one doesn't take, let's do it. We were in a space of desperation. And um, that one didn't take. I didn't get pregnant. And so we went, took off and we walked the Camino. So we spent a month, we walked the northern route um, where you get to walk along uh, the ocean for quite some time. And what it kind of does is breaks your body to a certain degree. Like I still have you know, damage in my feet from doing it. And in that breaking and remaking, uh, that's sort of like very obvious every day, all of a sudden I couldn't move anymore. Like I, a nerve got damaged in my shoulder and I couldn't carry my pack. And just these bodily level lessons of just trying to stay so close to the grain of life. Um, they just sort of are transformative because I don't, I don't know, I'm a middle-class Christian in Toronto, Canada. Like I, I don't live a hard life at all. Um, but there were days, there's one day we walked where we ran out of food and we couldn't find somewhere to buy food. And so we walked like 20 kilometers with no food or, you know, they're little glimpses of what it lives to live close to the bone without actually doing it. And along that way, feeling the brokenness of body, brokenness of spirit, and then the ways in which hope can emerge from that. I didn't have sort of the liberal option of being like doing my, my feminist critique of, redemptive suffering. <laughs> we can't talk about broken bodies because that's, you know, oppressive for broken bodies, except we go in these circles of not being able to engage really powerful stories and narratives and metaphors and ways of being in the world. And I think the Camino just kind of forced that upon us. I think what you have experienced and researched around like queer and feminist theology, right. I, I, I recognize that kind of move, right. That you're saying like, well, okay, maybe, some suffering is redemptive, but that's been used as a mm-hmm. weapon by patriarchal forces over the years. And so we don't want to pick up the same battle axe that those bastards have been throwing at mm-hmm. us, right? Yeah. Uh, and my own research is in spiritual abuse, which is, you know, yeah. it's immediate. Obviously, it's it's obvious what the connection is there, right? These are, th- there are these well-worn sort of ruts, you might say, in the human psyche and in human social community they're very powerful and they can be used for great good and they can be abused for great ill. Mm-hmm. And so we might want to say, well, if it can be used for abuse, then let's just not touch it. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's find something else. I think that the inherent problem with that approach is that religion sort of almost like natural selection religion, because it deals with ultimates like great art and, and great religion is great art will find like the best 
broken things. Like it, it's going to find the strongest tools mm-hmm. because it is when people are dealing with the transcendent when they end, but it is also when they need the transcendent to help them overcome the limitations of a bodily existence. Mm. And so that's kind of where that connects to me with your Camino story. You came up against the limits of your body mm-hmm. And poor and marginalized people come up against the limits of their ability to provide for themselves, to survive and thrive in the world. They and others turn to religion. They turn to art. They turn to something bigger than themselves to get through those moments. Sometimes they are being oppressed by other people using the exact same language. Mm -hmm. And it's so complicated and thorny, but To then say, well, we'll just leave it all away. We're basically saying, oh, you know, I'd really like to get to New York by next week, but I'm not going to avail myself of an airplane because airplanes are contributing to climate change, which they are. But if Mm -hmm. you got to get to New York, you're just going to get there faster in an airplane than in an old VW bus that runs on vegetable oil, which would Mm -hmm. be better for the environment. You know, so it's like it's this push and pull and it, it just kind of depends on what you're trying to do, maybe. But you you don't want to just say, I'll never have an airplane. It just yeah. will very much limit what you can do. This is why I think storytelling is so important, theologically speaking. So I'm an academic theologian, whatever that means, but I, I teach theology in a university. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I teach in a program um, that ha- trains people f- uh, to do spiritual psychotherapy as well, which I think is not particularly common in the U.S., I'm not sure. but Spiritual um, psychotherapy. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd have to... We it's not the Christian counselor you go yeah, to yeah. to make you stop being gay. Yeah. Um, it's the, <laughs> more like um, in the Canadian context, we're being looking at how psychotherapeutic practices separate off spiritual components. Briefly, I'll just say there is a movement to sort of add to the the biopsychosocial. That's that's the sort of a mm-hmm. holistic model for understanding a client. Psychologists use that, but also other medical professionals will use that model. And there is, you know, so what's going on biologically, what's going on psychologically in the the person's sort of cognitive space and what's going on socially between their family, their partners, their, you know, other people in their communities. And then some people want to say biopsychosocial spiritual Mm -hmm. and spiritual encompassing religion and spirituality, but also someone's highest values. It's it's basically Mm -hmm. a way of throwing positive psychology into the into the mix of like not just pathology and what's going wrong with people, but also how do they thrive? How can they be resilient? How can they be values driven? So I'm I'm a huge proponent of sort of tacking on that fourth piece. And there is some movement toward that, but it's uh, it's a little bit clunky and, and sort of rusted, I mm-hmm. would say, in the broader American psychological community. So sounds like yet another thing we could learn from our neighbors to the north. <laughs> so this is why I think storytelling is so important. I'm an academic theologian and I'm supposed to, um, you know, be doing that abstracted work and I think there's great, but that's the other piece. I don't want to say get rid of all the abstractions either. The abstractions are really helpful and useful. They're like theories to help us engage with the day-to-day practice, but they have to get told through storytelling. There are many different ways of producing knowledge, of sharing knowledge, and storytelling is one that we've really stripped off from our traditional theological ways of knowing. And so, yeah, I can't say to somebody... You know, your body just has to get really broken and then you'll know God. But I can say the day that my shoulder stopped working, I became desperate enough and had to lean on the Lord. Even though at that point in my life, I thought language of leaning on the Lord was deeply problematic in these seven ways. And then there was... (laughs) I can imagine the like Huffington Post guest article by the queer theologian on the seven ways that that's problematic. <laughs> but I probably it, read that. I probably read that piece five years ago. You know? Yeah, it's possible I wrote it. But there's, <laughs> there were these moments where I was like, I don't believe in praying in this way, but damn it, I'm going to have to pray in this way because it's my only option. And yeah. then I would pray in that way. And I'd be like, there's a story of a moment I got so desperate. I prayed for healing and just as I finished praying, my husband walked into the space with a doctor he had found who then healed me. <laughs> and I was like, God, wow. <laughs> seriously, yeah. are you just messing with me? This was like day seven. This is really annoying that everything we believe is being proven wrong constantly. And we just gave ourselves over to it. We're like, let's just 
be those people who pray for miracles for 30 days and see what happens. And then we'll go back to our lives and go back to not being people who pray for miracles. <laughs> but yeah, 30 days of having that stuff. You can't, you can't get rid of that. It's in the bones now. Well, and there, there's just something so interesting there about we do our best cognitively. We do our best sort of abstractly. Those of us, uh, many listeners of this show are, are join me in this category of person. We like to have a fairly internally consistent belief set about how things work, right? And when it comes to God, that is harder to do than when it comes to organic chemistry or something. <laughs> when it comes to organic chemistry, I can go, you know what? I trust sort of the latest research, what, whatever the organic chemists are saying, they'll get it pretty close. And I will defer to them at any time that that is related to my medical decisions. I'll defer to how that's been filtered through the medical journals, right? Okay. Fairly straightforward. Things of God, the types of prayer, the way it might work. I mean, we're just necessarily dealing with lower levels of confidence here and mm -hmm. less adequate models, less exact language even to sort of describe those models and, and how this might work, which maybe I'll just jump ahead briefly and talk about this Job passage because it's such a good bridge into sort of what you're doing here with uh, the transgressive devotional. So I'll give a, a brief table of contents for kind of where we're going. There are six modules. They're basically three pairs. There's a sort of a negative and then a, a constructive sort of, so it's abandonment into presence, fear into risk and certainty into doubt. And don't worry, you don't have to remember that. We're going to mention that again. But when you're doing fear before you go into risk, I love that you choose to bring in this passage from at the end of Job, when Job comes up against God and, you know, there God comes speaks out of the whirlwind. And there is just this in, I, I just, I was listening to your sort of audio version of it this morning before, while I was preparing to talk with you. And there's some language in there. There's poetic language about, you know, from God's perspective in human poetry, what it took to make the universe. <laughs> I just fucking love this. That's it's like, so good. <laughs> that is so good. That, that hits so many little angles for yeah. me, but I, I want to I read some of this because what hit me this morning was the sheer poetry of it. Now, this could hit you any number of ways. You could, mm -hmm. right? We could get at the abstract. We could get at the limits of language. But this morning for me, it was the poetry. He's saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Holy shit. Yeah. That that language is in our tradition. I know. I just all the critique. I'm like, but guys, do you know what's actually in here? This yeah. is a treasure trove of wisdom. But if we allowed it to speak to us as a spiritual text and allowed its story to shape our story with all the critical engagement that needs to be a part of that. Do you just realize there's really great fucking poetry here? <laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, I try to, I, I work with students who have so wanted to critique the Bible that they've forgotten that it's actually pretty incredible, incredible book. And like, of course it's quote unquote problematic. It's thousands of years old. Yeah. Stuff yeah. from the 1950s is problematic. Stuff from 10 minutes ago is like, do the work. And then you get to have Job being spoken to out of a whirlwind. And I just love this like image of this divine smackdown of like, who yeah. are you, oh mortal? But then to think, I feel myself in that position, staring into the whirlwind, thinking, who am I, oh mortal? Oh, I am the one to whom this God is speaking. Not because of some like, you are the most special person to Jesus, individualized understanding of salvation, but just that 
we get to stand in that whirlwind too. That's bananas. That's just wild. I quoted these lyrics from Bill Fay on a fairly recent episode where I walked through chronologically the the music of the Jesus movement with my friend Lindsay. <laughs> and Bill Fay was this British singer-songwriter who was kind of influenced by the Jesus movement, but not a part of it. But the lyric of his track is from the song Plan D is, you were born, though you need not have been born here at all. And is that not some cause for worship being born here among these trees? Oh, I love that. <laughs> I noticed a couple off ramps that I could have taken instead of sitting with the poetry. Mm -hmm. And one was, oh, it's this stuff about chaos of the sea. And this mm -hmm. is a big theological theme in the Old Testament that's been, that was really misunderstood for hundreds of years by Christians. But like historical scholarship has, you know, really shown some interesting lights on sort of, you know, the chaos monsters that the God of the, of the Torah is like bringing into you know, order. And then that leads to a really interesting psychological question that gets mm -hmm. into Jungian thought and, and sort of, you know, our desire to impose order on chaos and that sort of deep psychological need we have. And it's why I spend like an hour a day playing this stupid paint by numbers app on my phone <laughs> because I'm like making order out of, out of sort of nothingness or partial, you know, only an outline and it becomes colorful and, and it, you know, it's like, but I don't want to take either of those off ramps. I didn't mm -hmm. want to this morning. I wanted to sit with the poetry mm -hmm. and I, I guess, I, I guess I sort of love that I could have done any of those three mm -hmm. on a different day, but I, I like the idea of not losing the text because mm -hmm. the text allowed me to go in three helpful, potentially constructive, potentially clarifying directions for making sense of my time here on earth, essentially. It's funny. I mean, when you started to bring up the, the Job text, I was quickly trying to scan my brain to remember what I had used and how, because you could approach this thing thinking that the person who created it very carefully is interweaving these intentionally chosen pieces together. And I'm just a bit more muckily intuitive than that. So it's like, I just know that Job has been really meaningful to me when I've been thinking about fear. And I know that this has been really meaningful. And I know that this is an activity I've done. And if I make them interlock too neatly, if we do try to get them to cohere too neatly, then I would be just falsely prescribing for the person who's engaging the devotional what their experience should be. And so I actually didn't want to connect these things too deeply. I wanted to trust that there were potential connections there, that God could work through those connections in encounter with the person who was seeking to engage them. And that just as much as I wouldn't want to give a list of sort of dogmatic approaches to a devotional, which has been large, whether it's a conservative or a liberal devotional, I feel like I'm always being hammered over the head with what I should now believe. And right. I really wanted this to be a journey, um, sort of these little bricolages that I brought. To, this is the idea of it being performance art, bringing together these different pieces and trusting that somewhere between this love that I'm trying to share and the God who loves and the person who receives it in love that, that they'll create something out of it that I can't imagine. I mean, when you say there's this sort of deconstructive and constructive move, I think of it as the path of unknowing and not the dismantling, but more the, the stripping away of God's names to try to, to let God reveal God's self through new ones. And so really that path of unknowing is apophatic, cataphatic, apophatic spiral is really, I think, important in what I was trying to do here. Apophatic being the sort of lens that tends to say all the things we can't say about God, which yeah. we find in, in Christian mysticism, but also in, in other mystical forms of other religions. And then mm -hmm. cataphatic is the stuff that, well, what can we say about God? And that, that deals with whether that's revealed through sort of special revelation, or you can even do cataphatic stuff about God based on science, you know, say, well, what mm -hmm. do we know about this universe that if God is real, God brought into being, and you mm -hmm. can try and be constructive in that sense. I like that connection you made. Let's stick with the fear module here because you mentioned sort of putting these things together and then letting people sort of run with them. And the, the two main things you put together in the fear module are the Job whirlwind passage of Job sort of in this fearful presence of, of God, of the creator. 
And then Mary, the, the Annunciation, uh, where Mary is told in the story that she's going to be having Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's another one where, oh my gosh, you know, you want to bring in a, a queer theology or a feminist theology or, you know, all kinds of stuff like, you know, there's weird sort of historical stuff about the virgin birth. And, you know, I've done episodes on that and you can get really kind of academic with it mm-hmm. and it forks off in many interesting directions. You could talk about saints or the perfection, the moral perfection of Mary and the Catholic, all, all this shit. You can go any direction you want with it, mm-hmm. or you can sit with the poetry, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, or you can just say, well, or, or what you do really, as you set it up, I think you do this very well. I think you have a real respect for the necessity of time and process for people. And, and you focus on sort of cognitive stuff, emotional stuff, and bodily stuff. And you give prompts for for each of those for people to work through. Really, I, I just would really recommend you guys go f- track this <laughs> down. There'll be a link in the show notes. Go Go do one of the modules. What comes about for you in the juxtaposition between Job and Mary? So Job and Mary, side by side, I think of them both as friends and companions, just in trying to grapple with the agency that they had in their own stories. And I think with both of them, but especially with Mary, and as a woman, I have, across the course of my life, really tried to think about who she's supposed to be for me in faith. Not that she's supposed to be anything for me, who she was and how to empathize with her throughout it all. So, you know, I, I grew up going to Catholic school where I learned one very specific understanding of Mary. And then I was an evangelical where we just sort of like pretended Mary didn't exist and rejected her as much as we could, which was very confusing to me because she seemed like a fairly significant character in the gospel. Pretty Gospels. significant. Pretty important. <laughs> Let's just erase her though, because of our anti-Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and then it's like, then I'm supposed to reject the virgin birth because it's super, you know, problematic and like there's, you know, all the historical evidence and just, you know, how bodies work. Um, so that one may make sense to reject that one. And yet, man, it's such a good story. I'd rather just live as if it were true than get rid of it because it's patently probably not, especially around me too, the Me Too movement. We had a lot more conversations around, okay, well, given the power to rent, differentials between Mary and the divine, then how is this anything other than rape? And I think I sat with all of those stories. I do sit with all of those stories and the possibility that each one of them gives us a different lens on what's happening in this really fundamentally significant narrative for the life of faith. But when I sit with those stories, I feel too often like I'm being called to dismiss Mary's agency and the whole thing. It's just like, what are our interpretations going to do to her rather than, oh my goodness, who was this mysterious person and how did she live in this light? And so in the book, actually not so much on the devotional website, I do a few different things with Mary and of all the like super potentially offensive things I do in the book, it's the passage where I talk about Mary um, becoming pregnant with Jesus um, being a moment when she gets to have like a really like mind blowing orgasm. Um, and of all the iterations <laughs> that the book went through, that's the thing that the most times I got asked to remove. And I can tell you like, I this- can't possibly <laughs> imagine why. Yeah, but man, if you like, if you guys knew the other stuff that's in that book, like some of it is just, I'm like, why are you upset about an orgasm of everything? Like, there's some, I have. It's always sex. It's always sex there, that people no, but get this weird is what I'm saying, Dan. There is so much sex in this book. Oh, okay. That oh. is way, way more potentially offensive than Sweet Mary's afternoon delight. Like, yeah, right. There, uh, but it is. It's like people couldn't handle the idea that Mary came. So I paused there in case you needed to edit that. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's <laughs> because, I spe- because I've been trying to be edited for that so many times. Yeah. So I kind of went back and forth in terms of like, okay, well, if we accept that Mary is an agent here and there's a massive power differential, one that, you know, and then if you, you could take the liberal route of like, okay, well, they're on par and God isn't more powerful. God is, you know, really humbling God's self to Mary. I'm like, no, God is like, so powerful like why does my liberal christianity want to undermine the power of the very whatever who's created the universe 
So it's it's thinking like Job and Mary facing this terror. And our desire is always to just so overly affirm the power differential between the human and God that like we just allow it to be something abusive and walk away. Or we try to minimize that power differential and change it into something that's like mutually loving. And both of those parts are both of those are part of the story. And yet with Mary and Job, I wanted to think somewhere in between of the terror and the wonder and the hope and the ecstasy that's happening in both of those situations and not erase the mess of that, not pretend there's not a power dynamic, not over like, yeah, just sit in the midst of that. What does love look like with that kind of power differential? What does deep, intimate connection look like? And what are the practices we have in our day-to-day lives, including sexual ones, that help us get a handle on what's happening in those stories? What can they tell us about how we might relate to God in more intimate ways? July is going to be a very fun month. I would say July, August, September at least for the Patreon community. We have got a bunch of new stuff coming down the pipe. Episodes about shiny, happy people. The docuseries on Amazon Prime about the Duggar family and Bill Gothard's uh, homeschooling empire, if it's fair to call it that. With someone, Mark Scandrett, who was pretty involved in that world for many years of his life and, and started his own family along those lines. He's got obviously some some regrets now. Really thoughtful guy from San Francisco. And I'm excited to be breaking down each episode of that show and responding to it with him. That is going to be at least partially behind the uh, Patreon wall. Got a, a conversation with Sam Perez about her transition, among other things, not just gender-wise, but also theological transition, stuff like that. That's coming this month. Just a bunch of stuff. Kristen and I are going to do an episode. We're trying some things out. Anyway, it's a good time to join the Patreon if you haven't already. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And yeah, it's five bucks a month, and you get at least two exclusive episodes. It, It might end up being more than that the next few months. Uh, per month, as well as access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. It's kind of our digital community here at You Have Permission. And you also get access to ad-free full versions of these main feed episodes. So no ads, and often there is additional interview content. All the annoying stuff is already taken out, the ums and likes and all the long pauses, but you get uh, a fuller picture of what you know whatever my guest has to say or has to offer so that's the pitch i would appreciate your consideration patreon.com slash dan coke all right let's get back to the episode so here's where my mind sort of forks in two directions and and the the more abstract and to me in the moment more boring direction is to say well i don't think that an event occurred where Mary gets impregnated by the Holy spirit or however you want to say that. So therefore there's no orgasm. Like it's, this is a interpolation of the specialness of Jesus. That is, as I, as I guess sort of put on mm-hmm. to the, to the back part of the story, right? It, it's filling in the backstory to make sense of the present and recent past of people's absolutely life transforming uh, experiences with Jesus and their experiences upon his crucifixion. Uh-huh. So that's the fucking boring way to go with it. And then I go, okay, let's stop that. I don't want to go that direction. <laughs> but then the other direction is like, and where I think you, you kind of lean into it in the devotional is the human experience of fear, uh-huh. right? So you're not trying to skirt around this profound sort of fundamental you know, neurological, cognitive and bodily thing that we all experience. And that's where I go. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can sink my teeth into that. I can get my, I can get my fingernails dirty with, with fear because Mm -hmm. I experience fear and I'm anxiety prone and you know, all this shit. Right. So that's kind of where I want to go with it is like Job at the whirlwind, Mary 
up against the whirlwind Mm -hmm. with this new chapter of God's story and the the sort of awesome responsibility, not as a historical event, because I also don't think Job ever lived, but it doesn't bother me (laughs) that Job didn't live because this story we have. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we live Job and Mary in little ways. If, if we didn't live Mm -hmm. them, those stories would not like people wouldn't tell them, even if they were true, if they didn't relate to human experience, they would not get told, mm-hmm. right? Because we just don't share stories that don't connect to us, yeah. that we can't connect to our own experience in some way. So I don't know if that's helpful at all or no, inspires totally. anything for you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners right now are like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. But does she believe it actually happened that way? <laughs> like, could you just give us a clear answer, Natalie, on what you think? I'm just not going to because. I love that. Hold to because, your boundaries. <laughs> because I wanted, I want to keep resisting and seeking to dismantle yeah. a particular modern, let's say also colonizing, way of thinking about knowing. And yeah. to even yeah. ask the question of did it happen that way or didn't it is a question I don't even want on the table at this point because that question has had too much airtime. And what I would rather do is think, what are these stories forming in us and how can we move through them in different ways? So, okay, bringing in the fear, bringing in Mary's potential orgasm or not orgasm, if there's like a interesting kind of BDSM dynamic going on here, which is something I explore more in the book as well in terms of some... Yeah, you would think that that would be more <laughs> problematic for the editors than the orgasm. No one had a problem with that. No one had a problem with that. Wow. Um, but this sort of like generative yeah. um, role play I was imagining taking place in that scene as well. All these, and because again, I'm a queer theologian, so this stuff comes more to the fore for me. I'm trying to think about the traditions in ways that are outside of the heteronormative ways they've been typically framed. But bringing all these different approaches to the story of how, not just to understand and interpret it, but how to let it enter into and shape my life. And so the distinction you just drew there between the cognitive and the affective, this is a huge theme in my work of trying to think about, feel about what is happening in the theological claims we make affectively and how is that affect continuing to contribute to the ways we keep producing theological knowledge and what role does storytelling play in that? And so actually in the book, the chapters are father, spirit, son, church, uh, humanity, salvation. And the way those map onto father is abandonment in the, like, I don't talk about the father on the devotional, but the affect of the doctrine of the father that I explore as a God being diagnosed with dementia in the book becomes the affect of abandonment on the website. The In the book, the doctrine of the spirit that I'm constructing, which is reimagining the Holy Spirit, and this is the one that I can't believe this isn't what got cut, as uh, HIV, as a virus that gets spread, a deadly virus that gets spread. Those who want to hold on to their lives will lose them. Those who will give them up will save them. That spirit becomes about fear in the devotional. What goes with Presence. Presence is now reimagining what it is to um, be human in light of an ailing God. And so the theological anthropology I have is the the caregivers of the God with dementia in the book, living through practices of attunement. As someone who's psychologically trained, you'll know all about attunement rather than agency. And in the website, though, the affect that's animating that doctrine in the book is what it is to be present, to risk presence to someone, something um, to love. And so the website is actually taking the sort of affective engine of each of the doctrines that are in the book to try to not take an academic theology that you can then apply to your life, but an invitation to spend some time in the affective components of a doctrine. It's a area of relative weakness for me compared to the cognitive, right? Like mm-hmm. the emotional and affective, the the bodily or somatic, as we call it in the trade, you know, the, the sort of, and by the way, there's really fascinating research, even about cognitive decision-making that mm-hmm. really gives the lie to the old, uh, you know, sort of enlightenment fueled idea, very much picked up by American 
fundamentalism and thing in, in things like the four spiritual laws, that reason has to drive mm-hmm. the engine and that feelings and emotions have to come behind because, you know, they are really sort of subservient to reason. I think there's a version of that that's true. You know, I, I, I practice cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. with my clients and, and the way that I describe it to them is we're, we're bringing our thoughts and our, and, and the feelings that result from them, we're bringing them actually to the, to the light of reality. Uh, and we're letting reality, which is often kinder than the thoughts we, that cycle through our own minds and more accurate. And we, mm-hmm. we sort of bring that through and that's a form of, of, you know, reason you could call it reason. There's an emotional element to it of, of making space for those emotions, acknowledging them We're we're not only arguing, right. We're bringing the emotions into the, into the conversation, into the worksheets, into the, the homework in our, and the work that we do in the session, but long way around, there's really interesting research that people who have had the parts of their brain injured or severed where they do not have the the same emotional really sort of experience that we have through brain injury those people choose rationally more poorly than people oh. who have that connected That's yeah interesting so huh. they're really they're really truly not separable and the yeah. people who make the most quote unquote rational sort of they get the probabilities right they get the numbers most right have emotional faculties that mm. are fully connected so that's kind of part of the new science of, of emerging science of, of cognition and emotion that I think uh, is very welcome for those of us who want to reclaim emotion and body in our religious experience, especially if we were raised evangelical where those were really sort of pitted against each other. I think you're also raising some interesting questions around psychotherapeutic modalities and like my own experience with cognitive behavioral therapy I felt like I would, it was so very helpful to me. And one of the things that was very helpful to me for, and I know mindfulness-based modalities do this too, was developing the capacity to sit in the tension of the feeling, to not just say, okay, this is the rational thing that is therefore objectively true that helps me fix the problem of this feeling, but actually to sit with the feeling and see what is the feeling teaching me. If I look at the evidence against and for what I'm feeling, right, the whole chart you fill out when you're doing CBT, yeah, I, CBT can be so like the, like the scriptures, <laughs> misapplied yeah. in practice. And if you've got a CBT uh, practitioner who's saying to you, yeah, this is the evidence. Now the evidence is what's right. You shouldn't feel that way versus someone who's helping you integrate what you're seeing with the evidence, helping pull out of your affective response to a certain stimulus to reveal what it is that's your deepest desire and how do you need to work there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I love CBT. It is also, and it's, I, I, uh, you know, the research that shows just how effective it is, is fantastic, but as effective as a short-term solution that helps you build a kind of stamina to go back into, I think, those like more intense relational forms of psychotherapeutic practice. You, know, you don't do CBT forever. Well, I'm just going to say that the, like the capitalist drive to effective outcomes from psychotherapeutic processes concerns me around CBT. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a helpful, incredible tool when used well i'll stop i can see that you've got your hands on top of your head like don't take away my you can take away my wrathful god but don't take away my cbt (laughs) (laughs) well so i will just say this that actually the the use of our negative emotions our our difficult feelings as clues i mean it's just literally part and parcel of later forms of cbt so just even for instance the stuff that we do at my particular clinic that i inherited you know we we do basic automatic thought work, connecting it to our feelings and all of that. Uh, But then we get into core beliefs and core beliefs are sort Mm. of, these are enduring attitudes you have about yourself, other people and the world or Mm -hmm. even God. And when you're working with core beliefs, there's like a very common CBT practice called laddering where you basically say, okay, what's the thing that's going to happen that you're scared of? And then you say, okay. And then, and if that's Mm -hmm. true, then what's true. And if that's true, then what's true. And you get all the way down to well, then, then I'm useless or then I'm worthless or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that is CBT. I actually mm-hmm. think that there's kind of a, there gets to be a kind of false dichotomy between the more psychodynamic and whatever schools of thought and then the CBT schools of thought. Whereas I think there's a, a pretty 
a pretty straightforward way that you can really do both. And, and within CBT often you are doing them. But this is why I say like the good version of it versus the one that's not so good. Sure. I don't mean to bash CBT at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's been revolutionary for me. Yeah. 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 That's, and that's fine. I just, I always feel compelled <laughs> to sort of clarify that because most of my friends who are therapists that, that live near me, they, they went to a school called Seattle school of theology and psychology, which I respect in a lot of ways. Um, they don't get trained in CBT at all there. Oh, they, well, they don't get any training. And I, I think that's silly because yeah. it is, it's the most effective thing we know, at least for short-term stuff. And, short-term. and like, it's also, I, I just think it's, it, it becomes tribal. And actually a friend of mine who went there told me before I started my program that the most tribal people he'd ever encountered were the, the CBT type evidence-based therapists versus the psychodynamic sort of deeper Uh process therapists. And I think that he's been largely right about that. And it's another one of the polarizations that I am constantly trying to untangle and sort of build bridges across, because I think that we agree on 70% of it and all the best evidence shows that like, it's your rapport with your therapist that does more work than the modality anyway. So Okay, we can, we'll stop but that so, rabbit trail. Yeah, and I think, I think we're in agreement here and it does connect back to what we're talking about theologically because it's different tools for different moments. Yeah. And the, the interaction between these different modalities is what becomes helpful for someone's psychological healing. I can attest that part of my own spiritual journey, CBT helped me sit longer with these moments where the affective overwhelm that would push me to make a quote unquote rational theological commitment. I needed to spend longer with the thing that was forcing me to make that decision or that commitment too quickly. And CBT was incredibly helpful in my spiritual journey to let me step back and say, okay, here are my progressive commitments. Here are my radical commitments. Here are the aspects of that conservative faith that are still really I mean, we use words like flourishing and life-giving, but there's still the avenues through which I connect with God and that God uses to show up to me. And so I don't want to bracket those ones off either. And so those kinds of actually CBT practices helped me sit with each of those spaces longer to begin to integrate them. So yeah, I did not mean to bash. No, it's good. (laughs) No, I don't take it as bashing. I just... I've been doing a little values work of my own. And one of yeah. my values I've, I've discovered is accuracy, uh, which can oh, be pedantic and f-ing annoying, yeah. <laughs> but it's important to me. And, and it's one of the things that I feel frankly called to sort of serve and, and use my sort of ability to be conciliatory, but also communicate quickly and clearly to sort of bring in accurate, you know, accurate information where I think I can. Mm-hmm. And if I think I have good evidence for it. And so I just, I will, disrupt conversational flow sometimes in the <laughs> in pursuit of accuracy but i'm like you know what that's okay cuz cuz like most podcasters don't do that they kind of yeah. go with the the flow and sometimes they end up presenting less accurate sort of reads on things and that's attention you know you it, accuracy is not the only important thing but i realize that it is for me the yeah. relational dynamic here is interesting cuz in like your past four questions i thought wow he's really pushing towards accuracy And so now you naming accuracy as your value, I started to think, huh, what would be my value that's like the opposite of that? And right as I thought, "Mm, it's disruption, it's shit disturbing. Um, (laughs) As you said, you use advocacy, uh, sorry, accuracy to disrupt. So, I mean, yeah, I think that I always want to pull apart the sort of implicit assumptions to even how we assess what's accurate. And so... Yeah, that's going to make us just keep cutting each other off, I think, because we have this conversation. <laughs> well, it's constructive, though. Yeah. And really, it, it shows that it's not like it's not like we need accuracy or we need disruption. Like we, of course, need both. Both. Right. And and it's a matter of discernment as to when we need what. Yeah. Actually, that's a pretty good wraparound to mm-hmm. where we initially started with like the sort of queer, feminist, womanist, mm-hmm. you know, disabled theology, right? All, all these sort of critiques of, they are critiques of the text and the tradition, but they are maybe even more so critiques of the way that human beings and human institutions have leveraged the text yeah. and the tradition toward evil ends. And we need that. And that is actually a form of accuracy. It mm-hmm. is inaccurate 
to say something that, you know, you might hear all the time from an Instagram pastor that historic Christian orthodoxy has always agreed on the role yeah. of, of women and, and what sort of sexuality is within bounds or whatever. Like, actually, that's inaccurate. And mm-hmm. these forms get at accuracy, which is a much more muddled and confusing picture. And, but we, and we need that. And then we also need times where we can go, you know what? I'd like to actually disrupt you know, the constant questioning and what is the phrase that I've been loving that I think comes from Charles Taylor, just like we're in an age where everything is contestable mm-hmm. and that becomes a virtue for especially sort of progressive and liberal thinkers is, is to show how good we are at contesting ideas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it is true. Everything is in principle and in fact contestable. You can always consider other things. But you can also go blue in the face doing that and you could die doing that. Mm-hmm. And and I love your sort of like my arms started moving and I just started worshiping again, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and I prayed for healing. And like, you know, so I, I actually think that does sort of map pretty well. Like, and I felt so like personally, affectively during the first 40 minutes of our conversation to even get really granular or even meta, depending on how you want to think of it. Like I was just loving being in that non-accurate, not that it was inaccurate, <laughs> not that it was inaccurate, but not sort of striving for accuracy yeah. and really thinking about what, how, how do we do this and hope and transcendence and, and this experiential thing. And then as I like would kind of started in the last 25 minutes, getting into the accuracy stuff, being like, oh, me. Okay. Well, I do feel like I need to be clear about this and I'm so comfortable in these modes and I think it's good. I think it's kind of my job, but you're sort of helping me see both through interacting with you and through your project, I think are both helping me see the the yin and yang of that. We got to have both. It was so refreshing for me. Like, (laughs) like I enjoyed the earlier parts a lot more because it gave me a break. Not that I, I have enjoyed all of it, and I love that showing got off. Really boring in the last twenty minutes. No, no, no. It, no it, my I'm, question for you is: what was yeah. what was the tipping point? So, not to psychoanalyze you, but to psychoanalyze you Please. a little bit. What was the tipping point then that made you have to jump back into that safe zone of accuracy? Was it the virgin birth? I feel the like virgin birth. I think up. started getting the engine warming up, so to speak. Yeah. Like you know, I'll, yeah. I'll warm the car up for our morning drive and get the frost <laughs> off the windshield, and then CBT. <laughs> That's yeah, when I was like. No. You okay. did tweet. It was because, <laughs> well, I, I honestly feel almost like an ethical obligation around oh, issues okay. of psychotherapy because yeah. people understand that that is an area of expertise yeah. of mine. It's it's my area of practice and it's my area of research as well. I mean, research more around spiritual abuse, but the psychology of religion, you know, that, that being kind of my bailiwick. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of probably what made me go into that mode. And the nice thing about podcasts is people can turn it off if they're like, oh, this is getting boring. I don't want to hear that part. Great. They can <laughs> press pause and they can go listen to a, a movie podcast or something if they want. Yeah. <laughs> but both parts are are necessary. Like this is our, you know, this is our Abbey Road. Side A is a bunch of individual tracks and side B is the, the first rock opera. You know, that's fine. <laughs> they're just different. Yeah. They're just different. Yeah. I'm glad that you called us back on that because I would... I would leave this conversation absolutely devastated if I thought that I had somehow inadvertently convinced someone to give up a therapeutic practice that was healing for them. Again, please, I, yeah. Oh, I don't think you would have. I don't think you would have. No, I'm sure I'm not that convincing, but just more. (laughs) (laughs) No, because you said that it helped you. That's why (laughs) people wouldn't have given up on it. Yeah. But they, if they'd just turn it off to go listen to a podcast about like The Last of Us or something, then they would, <laughs> being the show I finished last night. Yeah. And I think this is also where like I get nervous with my work, right? That I've got, um, I'm just sort of like on this journey of playing with different ideas and all the things I'm trying to play with and make help speak anew in this performative way are potentially harmful and healing. I don't, I personally don't feel drawn to work with anything that can't go one way or the other, you know? So I, but it's so I like, I always leave these conversations thinking, Oh, someone could have taken that in the harmful direction rather than the healing one. And that's when it gets tricky. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't particularly worried about that. It's more that for me, it's important to help reduce that conflict between those two sides of therapeutic practice and a lot of Christian, like more liberal or progressive Christian therapists 
maybe reflexively, maybe through training, align with that more psychodynamic mm-hmm. side for probably all kinds of reasons. And it's just interesting. I, I'm I'm just finding myself really appreciating the emotional and even spiritual depths that people can get to through CBT yeah. or co- like I do cognitive processing therapy with people who have trauma mm-hmm. and it's a CBT based trauma therapy. And man, we get into some deep shit mm-hmm. and you know, all the really just the abs- the absolute deepest parts of people's stories and their pain. Mm-hmm. And so I just have a passion for yeah. like breaking down those false dichotomies that's that's the accuracy thing. But no, I, I actually, I mean, I think that people will actually have really enjoyed this and how we were able to sort of wrap that back around because I think that we're instantiating the thing that we're talking about. And and just to sort of close that loop, the work that you do, the devotional that you put up online got me engaging with another part of my self that I found really refreshing and helpful. And so did the first 40 minutes of our conversation. <laughs> and, and I think listeners will notice that that's not the mode that I, I tend mm. to go with because of my, you know, just my bent and my personality and my gifting and all that shit. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm 10 out of 10 here. Do you want to do a little of the cognitive intellectual stuff though? I can play that game too. Now we did. I like listening it. to that stuff on your podcast. <laughs> we, I appreciate that. Uh, I think we did some of it and, yeah. and uh, people, and I guess we'll say this, if people want more of that from you, then the, it sounds like the book has a lot more of that in it. Yeah. Uh, sort of as you go through, because you are a, a theologian and a, and a professor. And so, you, you know, you do some of that professorial thing. That serious um, professor. The thing. academic yeah. thing. Yeah. And it's then, not super yeah. academic though. It's more storytelling even okay. in there, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. These are all labors of love. Absolutely. Well, Natalie, what a great conversation. And I, again, I would heartily recommend that people check out either the book, if that sounds more up their alley or the devotional. I just think it's a really unique tool. It's really cool. I'm, I'm going to be going through and doing the whole thing personally. I was just kind of looking at excerpts and just loving what I saw. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, and all it just might be worth saying it was grant funded. And so it's a totally free resource. I, towards the end of COVID was feeling really like ministers needed more free resources. And so I wanted to create something that felt beautiful, felt like it could be paid for, but without making people pay for it. And yeah, it works for using on your own. It works for if you want to do a six-week study in your church. It works for a weekend retreat. I tried to take all the different ways it could be used into account when I created it. And so it is there totally free and open. And I hope that it is a blessing to people. So awesome. Thanks so much, Natalie. Yeah, thanks for having me. 